Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover the CBS All Access series, The Stand. Episode 1, The End. Let's start the show! In the end, we are introduced to three characters whose fates seem intertwined via a framing story. During a massive flu epidemic that kills over 99% of all people, Harold Lauder, a social outcast, is a young man aspiring to be a writer. His former babysitter, Franny Goldsmith, is the only other survivor in his small main town. Together, they decide to travel to the CDC in Atlanta, where they hope to find someone in charge. Meanwhile, Stu Redman is being studied by military scientists because he is immune to the flu. Five months later in the Boulder Free Zone, we see Harold plotting against Stu and Fran, who is now pregnant. Jay, we talked a lot when we covered the stand, the novel, about how strange it was to read it in 2020 in the midst of the COVID-19 outbreak and how there were some uncanny parallels between the novel and real life. Indeed. Yeah. And for me watching this, it hit me different. Seeing it actually portrayed on screen where people are sick and coughing and sneezing and the looks that people give when they hear these people coughing. It is very scary in a way that's different from reading it in a book yeah and even seeing the occasional and it really was occasional uh, person in the show wearing a mask yeah they're sort of on their own too they didn't this this crept up on the world so quickly that nobody had a chance to figure out what would be effective or, or what was enough to protect yourself so everybody sort of just making it up for themselves which yeah. meant only a handful of people even bother to wear a mask or thought to wear a mask. So I have a feeling that this show is going to hit a lot of people in a lot of different ways because of that. And I wonder if it'll affect the way that it's perceived. It'll be an interesting aspect of this show premiering what it did. So one of the things we want to do as we cover a TV show for the first time, Jay, which is sort of exciting, is we want to yeah, this is cool. include listener feedback, especially since we're going to be as timely as we can with these episodes. So we want people to be able to respond, and hopefully we can respond to them and hear what they're thinking. And even though this just premiered earlier today, we already have a, a listener who has given us some thoughts, and that is Travis, who wanted to ask us, Jay, about what did we think about the nonlinear structure? Uh, I could see book readers hating it because it's not what King did, but I can also see it working best for them because they get to watch the story unfold in a different way. Non-book readers may be left confused, or they might like the modern lost like structure which i thought was interesting because i that was the first thing i thought of as well it's like okay here's how we're doing this we're going to have a framing device we're going to focus on one character and maybe look at a little bit of their backstory and go from there yeah i do see like there there's merit to to the way that they chose to adapt this show and for me as a book reader i'm just picking up where they pick up and it feels like that same sensation of when you start a movie in the middle. Hmm. I already know what this moment is when Harold is helping to clean up bodies. I know what that represents in the book. 
is that the best place to start like frame one of a TV series for somebody who has no familiarity with the story? We'll find out. Um, it's hard for me to put myself in those shoes, but it's a, it's an interesting question. Yeah. You know, it, he, Travis mentioned lost, but what I thought about was breaking bad. So breaking bad has that in episode one, it starts off with a scene with Walter White in the middle of a desert, just wearing tidy whiteies. Mm-hmm. And it is very memorable. And the thing about that is your immediate thought is how did this guy get in this situation where he's yep. in an RV in his underpants with a gun in the middle of the desert? And and so what's going to be the buildup to that? And then in the second season, they did something similar, right? There was a an eyeball floating in a pool in Breaking mm-hmm. Bad. And you're like, oh, whose eyeball is that? Why is it in a pool? What exactly happened? And so when I think of starting a story in Media Reyes, it's often like, oh, this is some sort of pivotal point or important point, and how did we get here? And I did think it was odd that the point that we started with is just Harold cleaning up the bodies and then throwing up. It didn't seem, in my memory of the book, like this is a major pivotal point in either the whole story or even as that character as, a, as an individual. And so when the framing story started there, I'm like, what are we doing? And I almost felt like was there an episode that I missed coming into this? Because I don't know what's going on. And I've, I've obviously read the book, so I was able to catch up quickly, but it, it seemed a little bit weird to me. If I had to guess what the, the showrunner was going for here, the thing that, that they were trying to get to with this in Meteor Res moment was there are so many dead bodies and decaying bodies and people who died where they stood or sat. That's the thing. Like, how did we get here? You know, let's start there. Let's start with the devastation of the disease, Captain Trips, and then work our way back to it. Yep. So rather than watching a bunch of people get the sniffles for episode after episode and, you know, just gradually have more and more people dead, instead they had everybody dead. Right. And then at some point of, without really giving us a chance to see this yet, dealing with the aftermath of that mass death from that perspective i think it's 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 effective because if you don't know what to expect on this and even you know just being a book reader i i wasn't sure how they were going to visually represent somebody who has died from captive trips and they did a pretty great job of that yes those scenes of the dead people when i first saw them it's like oh well that's how they're gonna do it okay yep yeah i i guess the other issue i had with it was the first line of the show is Mother Abigail's voice, and it's her dying words in the book. Spoiler alert. <laughs> where she actually says, "You, I need you to go to Las Vegas and take a stand. Right? And you're yeah. like, oh, great. Yep, we're there. And then to zoom in on Harold, who's not that person, and who is in fact a antagonist of, of the story uh, to some extent. It just seemed odd to me that this is this is how we're starting and this is the character we're starting with. I was a little taken aback by that. I'm not saying it was a bad choice. It was just a choice that I was not expecting. And I'm not sure for a non-book reader how it's going to play out. And and Travis was getting to that to some extent when he asked what a non-book reader might think. So I, I'll be interested to talk to other people who watch the show and see what they think about that. So, Travis, thank you for your feedback. And uh, to all of our listeners, please keep your feedback coming. 
for all the episodes. If you want to talk about previous episodes in the coming weeks uh, and your analysis and comparison for that, please share. Uh, we want to have that conversation on the air. So I want to talk a little bit more about some of the cool directorial choices that were made in this episode, Jay. We have seen in other adaptations recently how there's this Stephen King cinematic universe. Even in Gerald's game, mm -hmm. they drop a... All things serve the beam. The it adaptations and the Castle Rock and the Dark Tower all have somewhat blatant references to other King's works. And there weren't a lot of references to other King works here, but there were some subtle choices the director made that I thought were very cool. And one of the first ones is about Harold, who's the focus of this episode. It's early on when he is clearing out a house and they're in somebody's movie room and he is on screen. And the only other thing on screen with him is a Dark Man poster, which is a great Liam Neeson movie. And just that sort of hint like Dark Man, Harold. And then when the camera turns around and it's facing the other guy who's looking at the DVDs, the only DVD that I could see that was very visible was one that said Heroes. And so the, the fact that like, oh, Heroes. And then we turn around to look at Harold and it says Dark Man. Pretty slick. Right. And characters in the book refer to Flag as the Dark Man. So, I mean, it's just like, is that just sort of a two-dimensional two representation of Flag himself on in that poster looking down on the room and... And Harold. And Harold and perhaps already influencing him. Yep. There's another one when Harold's dream sequence and he encounters the wolf and he sees a man, a faceless man. We don't get to see his face. And when they cut back to, to Harold waking up, the camera is focused in the on Harold. And in the foreground, there are glasses on a desk. And the glasses has a light shining on it. And the way the light shines across the glass, it looks like an eye that slowly turns and looks right at Harold. And you get a sense like, oh, somebody is looking at Harold right now through that dream, through these glasses. And I thought that that was a cool little touch. It's really cool how Flag knows how to press all the right buttons for everybody. We get the impression from Harold in just the first few minutes of seeing him on screen that he is sexually repressed. Mm. At a minimum, there, yep. there's something going on with him there where he's just like all hormones, right? And in Flag's connection to him through the dream world, in addition to just showing up among the shadows of these desert boulders, there are also these neon like pinup girls. Yeah. And if this had been Stu's dream, Flag wouldn't have done that. But for Harold, it's like, hey, yeah, let me put up some, some like, you know, Hotsy totsy stuff for you because <laughs> I know this will catch your attention. This will tantalize you. This will lead you closer to me. Yep. And um, and I thought it was a nice touch of how the show chose to do that. It wasn't actual women in the dream. It was the promise of women in a neon sign, just like you might see in a marquee, leading you into like say a, a Vegas strip club or something like that. Yep. It had that nice multiple layer subtlety yeah one of the other things harold sees in that room is a, a magazine called expose magazine and it's got a picture of tom cruise on the cover with his big tom cruise smile that harold later fakes in the mirror and there's three bullet points under the tom cruise what the article is going to be about how to make an impression how to get ahead and how to gain respect totally what harold's going for 
the answer to all three of those is join the Church of Scientology, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or be a handsome guy like Tom Cruise, one of the or one or the <laughs> other. There's one thing that I I wasn't thrilled about with this episode, which was this episode introduced us to three characters. We spent some time with Stu. We spent a lot of time with Harold. Yep. And we spent a little bit of time with Franny. Mm. And the people who adapted this TV series wrote the screenplay for this episode could have chosen any one of those three characters to spend the most time with. And because Harold and Franny, in this episode at least, kind of are a pair, they, they bounce off each other, they're in the same town, they've known each other their whole lives, they, they have a lot of connections besides Captain Tripp's. Why didn't they just make this from Franny's perspective? It would have given us a little bit more time to get to know Franny. Yeah. Maybe linger a little bit more on her struggle with the death of her father. They completely excised her mother. Everything that went on with that. Uh, okay, we, we can't have the parlor. We can't have of that. that. That's really hard to fit into a TV show with limited time. But it made it seem like she had no mother. Right. That person didn't exist in her life. And meanwhile, we get like a sister for Harold and a, a mother for Harold, again, and, and a father for Harold, whereas in the book, we just know that Harold's parents died. Yeah. And that was all. So anyway, getting back to Franny, I wish that we had spent a bit more time with her. I, I think if we could have flipped it, spent the, the same amount of spent the amount of time we spent with Harold with Franny and the amount of time we spent with Franny with Harold, because in some ways, Harold's... Harold's development and introduction could be done, I think, more efficiently. Like that, you can establish that he's got the sexual repression and this unrequited crush on Franny, and a few other things. Get him, let him get beat up by the bullies, and then okay, we're done. Now let's spend that time on Franny. Yeah, I'm assuming and guessing we'll get Franny's backstory in a similar flashback framing story if if they use the same episodic structure throughout but again it does seem weird because if you've not read the book all you see of franny is a girl whose father has passed away that she had to bury and they did keep the gurgling father the dead gurgling father uh mm -hmm. piece in and then she tries to commit suicide which is unlike the franny we know and whether or not there's more behind that or not we don't know because we haven't seen her character but all of those things are done to promote harold's character so we are meant as viewers, I think, to try to sympathize with Harold while still understanding that he is not a the hero of this story. As you said, he's sexually repressed. He's he's spying on Franny. He's faking sincerity. But at the same time, he rescues Franny from committing suicide. So her her actions relate to him. And then he also saves that guy from falling into the pit early on. So we get this like, hey, he he's sort of balancing this edge and then we get the manifesto where he's like, you know, there's points where he could have turned and he mm -hmm. hasn't. And so uh, even the Franny stuff we do get is in from Harold's perspective. And that is disappointing. I suspect that the Franny suicide attempt was a screenwriter's shorthand for let's very quickly build a relationship between two people by having one of them have a near death experience and the other one save, save the, the person. Yep. By making the choice for that crisis to be a suicide attempt, I think it diminishes Franny's character. Yeah. 
later on because she starts off with this facing the the horrors of of the plague and giving up and does that change who she becomes later right or does it make who she becomes later feel inconsistent because it does feel inconsistent to the friend in the book and it, this isn't the point here isn't to just say the book did it this way the show did it that way and we like one or the other it, it's just that I feel like this was something that they tried to do for expediency. Yes. But I feel they should have made a different decision. Put Franny in some other uh, crisis that wasn't suicide and let Harold help her with that. That's all. Because this is such a male-centric story, having the primary female character be sort of cut in that way to make it benefit the ma- a male character is a disappointment, I think. Yeah. Because she gets to that point in the book, but it's in these subtle ways, like, oh, look at how he painted the sign. Like, he risked his life to do that. Oh, look at how he gets gas for the mopeds. Like, that relationship builds a long time throughout their journey where she comes to respect Harold more and is sort of upset that the way she treated him at first. But it happens in the span of a few minutes here where she's like all of a sudden putting her head on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're right. We talked a little bit about Harold. We talked a little bit about Franny. How about Stu, Jay? His story hits the beats that it hits in the book. James Marston is a fine enough actor. But this Stu seems very passive to me. And not as heroic as I wanted him to be. I joked about the Save the Cat book. It's a screenwriter's thing where, you know, you want your main character to do something heroic in the first couple of minutes of the screenplay so that we know that he's the hero and and that he's going to do good things. You know, a show like House of Cards immediately contrasts that by having their main character kill a dog on the on the in the first scene. It, but but here in the stand we get that in the book when when Stu sees the car coming and is going to wreck the gas station and his friends and blow it up and he he makes a a lunge to shut off the gas pumps. And here we start out with Stu already a captive in the hospital, and we get that in flashbacks, and we don't even get that scene where he's saving anyone. He just says, hey, there's a truck coming, shut off your pumps, and nobody does it, and there's no impact because of that. Everything happens to Stu, but he seems very bland so far in this adaptation. That's interesting. I think my, my mental image of Stu from the book is somebody who is very thoughtful, far more intelligent than the people around him ever assume or give him credit for and he's even amongst his closest friends the ones who he would day drink at the the gas station uh with i, I think he was uh, a man apart from them mm. he he liked them they were his friends he it's he didn't think of himself as better than they were but i think Stu was better than them in a lot of ways he was the one who noticed the car coming no one else. He was the one who dove in to inside the gas station and and shut off the pumps. And he had to rescue himself and escape from the the hospital or the military facility in the book. Whereas here, as you say, it was it seemed much more passive. Stu's already a captive in there, and he gets out because someone opens the door for him. <laughs> yeah. And and literally shows him the way by following flashing lights. Yeah. And that scene is 
so brief where we don't even get any of the horror, like only brief glimpses when he looks around and says, oh, wow, everyone's dead. It's basically that. It's not, it, none of the horror movie, you know, is, is somebody around the corner? Is that, is that set of footsteps that I think is following me? Is that my own echo? Or is there someone chasing me kind of? Right. I'm just scared out of my wits that we went through with Stu in the book. And also because we can't have Stu's inner inner dialogue yep. or inner monologue. Um, he just had to say all these things out loud. And that just seems like a violation of the Stu we know from the book. Yeah, exactly. He he has to interact with people a lot more. So he has to ask a lot of questions, get a lot of dialoguing and monologuing by other characters. and it does make that Stu, instead of being the quiet guy who's intelligent on the inside, he's asking questions that we sort of know the answers to, and he has to talk a lot. So one more character who is not given as much screen time as the other three, but the screen time he gets is pretty impactful. And mm -hmm. I think the showrunners have done a nice job with it. And that is Randall Flagg himself, the dark man. Yeah. We get this great scene. So th the place we thought that the that I thought the show would start with, which is Private Campion, who's in the in the lab, Patient Zero, we actually see that moment happen. And when Campion has to try to escape, the door is held open, and he's able to run out and find his family and and get out. And there's a boot there holding the door open for him that he doesn't notice at all. I thought that was such a cool touch. It's something that you alluded to, I think, when we did the book, like. Hey, did 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 Flag help like cause it? And here it's like explicitly stated. Yep. Yeah. Flag's the one. Yeah, because I I said that in the book when because I thought it would be really cool if Flag had had a hand in it, but the book doesn't even hint at it. It just it's just like this is something that went wrong. It yeah. shouldn't have gone wrong, but did and led to these terrible consequences. But wouldn't it have been awesome if it had been <laughs> Flag who had somehow influenced? this or instigated it yep and yeah i mean the door was all bent and torn and it didn't seem like that was because of flag's foot like maybe it was always kind of messed up but hard to say exactly yeah and then the, it's that cool creepy scene when campion and his family are driving off and they see a hitchhiker at the side of the road that they pass right on by and then he looks in the rearview mirror and he sees him around his baby. Oh, that was creepy. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was really well done. And the other cool thing that they did was when we first meet Harold and the the bullies are, I mean, should we even call them bullies? It seems like they 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 were almost justified in chasing it after him and wanting to beat him up, but for, for something that he said or did. Right. Anyway, let's just call them bullies. They're chasing him through through this like narrow sidewalk or alleyway and then he gets distracted by a crow pecking at a dead animal and causes him to flip his bike and yep. totally get wrecked and of course anytime we see a crow what are we gonna think right it's so just like flag literally held the door open for campion pretty sure he tripped harold and and wrecked his bike yep right agreed i, I think it's awesome that flag is present from minute one in the, the tv show yeah and not just because of the rearrangement of the timeline but just like even in the earliest moment that that moment with campion 
running out of the military base. Flag's already there. Yep. All right. Well, Jay, why don't we get into any Dark Tower thinnies that might exist? All right. I found one clear Dark Tower thinny, and that was a line that Dr. Ellis says to Stu towards the end of Stu's stay in this military facility. Dr. Ellis says, no one has seen or heard of General Starkey in 19 hours. 19 hours, eh? It could have been any number of hours, but it was 19 hours. So you're calling that a clear Dark Tower thinny. Absolutely. (laughs) It's like next exit for Hemingford home is 19 miles down the highway. Is that a coincidence? No, that's a choice. You had to make that prop. That's true. The other prop that I noticed that is a Dark Tower thinny is Harold's room has a distinctive poster, and it is the album cover for King Crimson's album in the court of the Crimson King. And it is a very distinctive yelling face. And maybe I'll put it in the show notes. It, it takes up a big portion of the screen when when Harold walks into his room. Crimson King, I think that that's a much clearer Dark Tower thinny. Yeah. I mean, Crimson King is always going to be a, a thinny. Jay, we when we were contemplating doing the TV show, we wondered, would we keep all of our our regular features like Dark Tower thinnies and fun stuff and yucking it up? And I was pleased to see that within the first 30 seconds of the show, keeping <laughs> yucking it up was totally worth it. Yes. Blah. So I alluded to this, of course, um, hard not to even uh, talk about it over and over again. But that first scene when they go into the church to clean up the dead bodies in Boulder. Oof, that was rough. I knew this was going to be an adaptation of story that has a lot of really disgusting stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And I was curious, like part of me was just plain like clinically curious. How will this show decide to represent tube neck? and? Captain Trips and rotting bodies. And um, yeah, I got my answer in a really big way in that, that church cleanup. And uh, yeah. yeah, they're not going to shy away from it all. Yeah, so my yucking it up moment since you took the uh, church cleanup scene was when uh, Sergeant Cole comes to do in Stu at the medical facilities as, as his last action. He has quite the tube neck on him. And when Stu cuts the tube neck, he slashes him really good with the scalpel. And the tube neck sort of explodes, but it's not with blood. It's with some sort of pus or something. And that's what kills him. And uh, that was a little much for me. Yeah, that was that was pretty bad. Yuck, indeed. Sean, I, I believe we got a new patron recently. We did. And we want to thank all of our patrons for joining us um, as we move to a all-weekly show during this time of the stand it is very important that we continue to have support for the show and our patrons do it through patreon and in addition to supporting this main feed they get bonus podcast episodes to patreon and you can find out more by visiting patreon.com slash two guys dark tower and the new patron that i mentioned a moment ago i believe his name is pronounced jan helgi roskar joined at the gunslinger level recently so thanks, Jan. Yeah, no, thank you very much, Jan. Every little bit helps, and we appreciate all of our patrons and all of our listeners. Jay, let's get into some fun stuff. 
There's a moment with Harold Chekhov's gun when he goes into a police car and takes the gun away from a police officer. And then he is pointing it out in the in the town square, it looks like they're in. And when he does, he's behind or he's in front of an antique store. Mm-hmm. And when he holds up the gun, he blocks off the last half of the word. And so what you see, it says anti, and then you see the gun. And I have to think that that was an intentional directoral choice to say anti-gun as Harold is holding that gun. Yeah, I thought that your catch of that was brilliant. I did not pick pick up on that. I wasn't I wasn't reading the antique, the word antique behind the gun. I was I was so focused on Harold with the gun thinking is he going to fire the gun in right in the middle of this intersection just to see what it feels like to shoot the gun or something like that and I, I totally missed that, but the, that's that's an awesome catch. But I wonder like are we supposed to take that as Harold is an is anti-gun like Harold himself is or is this the the show the 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 director if you will telling us he's or she's anti-gun but not but but not necessarily this character on the yeah, screen. Yeah. I I think especially considering King's thoughts on guns and also you know one of the themes of the book is that there are all these weapons lying around and they're going to cause trouble. And here's just another one, right? This is just a gun sitting in a car with a dead person and anyone's able to go and just pick it up and do what they want with it. And so I think that it is an intentional anti-gun message, not that the character is. After you pointed this out to me, I I thought, well, what if you sort of expanded it slightly and made it a message about Harold, the character, that Harold is anti. He's anti-everything. He's an anti-hero. You know, he's he is based on the manifesto that he's composing and the things that he says right at the end of the episode about how he plans to kill Stu and possibly even Franny, maybe maybe Harold is just anti. And, and that's what we're supposed to see. It's the gun that's covering the rest of the word in antique, but it's saying Harold is just the negative. Mm, yeah, I dig it. So you mentioned the Tom Cruise magazine cover. I thought that it was really funny that the person that Harold decided to use as a model for his fake smile was a person who's like known for a fake smile. Yeah. Like Tom Cruise has this lightning in a bottle smile, but it always feels a little bit like he's acting when he right. does it. So like, is he actually genuinely happy and that's why he's smiling or is it that he's pretending to put on this smile because that's what the cameras are expecting whether he's in a movie or in an interview like or the paparazzi or have caught him on the street corner it's just tom cruise has a just a little bit of um it's sort of forced and that's exactly what harold's doing yep. so like maybe you should have used should have used a genuine smile to model not a fake one i don't know it works for tom yeah but this is like like turtles all the way down it's it's fake (laughs) smiles all the way down yeah well so as long as we're talking about harold's fake smile the the episode ends with that framing story with harold then actually using the smile when he sees Stu and franny together Mm -hmm. and Stu and franny are harold's like walking down the street of boulder and there's people around that he's smiling at and then he gets to what seems to be like a, a picnic area. There's lots of people around and he sees Franny and Stu and Franny and Stu are coming away from a food truck. 
And all I had to think was like, <laughs> my town doesn't have food trucks, uh, Jay. And here we are, the Boulder Free Zone, just a couple months after a plague that wipes out 99% of the population, already has food trucks up and running in the middle of the square. And I was like, man, that's how you know civilization has come back. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe that just says something about where you live. Yeah, that could be. I was like, I don't even know what the word is. Surprised, offended. <laughs> just annoyed by Harold's choice in his patent leather boots. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I immediately thought of Jay when I saw the patent leather boots, and that's because you went on and on when we discussed the book about everyone's poor foot choices, yeah. footwear choices. <laughs> and as soon as he put those on, I'm like, Jay's going to be pissed about this. <laughs> this. This jerk can get any boots he wants from any sporting goods store in in maine and he goes for like i don't know what that was military issue dress uniform i don't know maybe highway patrol think maybe he <laughs> thought i'm gonna wear the dress uniform for the california highway patrol because that's what i should wear for my cross-country scooter ride <laughs> <laughs> i wonder if he stole those from the cop too <laughs> so when i heard the voice go over the loudspeaker to direct Stu of how to escape i'm like i think i know whose voice that is and then when i saw the back of his head and the way he was standing look at all those monitors i'm like that's got to be jk simmons and when he turned around damned if it wasn't jk simmons and was i happy yes jay i was happy this was a part that was played by ed harris in the original miniseries and mm -hmm. uh, now by J.K. Simmons, it's like, hey, we're going to spend for one big guest star for a, a good scene. And here we go. And we get our J.K. Simmons. But, Jay, they ruined it. You mean they ruined it? They ruined it. They make a big deal about the book of poetry, right? They even allow J.K. Simmons to recite the poem. But he pronounces Yeats' name correctly. Like, the whole thing is the character doesn't know who the poet is. And he, pron he pronounces it Yeats. And, but I guess they couldn't leave that touch in. So you and I both made that same note when we watched the show and it, it's worth a chuckle for sure that, that, you know, JK Simmons pronounced Yates Yates. But I, I think the mistake really is King because King, especially when he first wrote the stand, he, he really was anti-military, anti-government maybe even. Yeah. So he had no respect for you know men in uniform so it's easy for him to write a character who is a four-star general who's also an imbecile mm. the truth is you don't get to that rank you don't get to that level of success unless you're supremely intelligent you might do things that somebody like you or i or stephen king might not like from a political standpoint or even uh, a war choice or, or military maneuver standpoint but it doesn't mean that you're not educated it doesn't mean that you're not smart you, you just you, it's really difficult to get beyond a certain point unless you have those there's unless there's more to you than than the average soldier yeah so i don't think that somebody who's who like the version that ed harris portrayed or the version that jk simmons portrayed these are men who have achieved the highest level of success possible in the military. 
you don't think they might have read a couple of books of poetry along the way? And at least know how to say Yates? So, anyway, that's just my my rant to justify the, this, this directorial choice and <laughs> uh, my appreciation of J.K. Simmons' performance. The guy is a... He's, you know, he's a national treasure. He does yep. everything he does is great. Whether he's teaching somebody how to play the drums or or yelling at Spider Man, it's it's <laughs> it all works. It does, it does. All right. I also thought of you again, Jay, when uh, the musical cue for Randall Flag is Billy Joel's "The Stranger," mm-hmm. which then plays over the ending credits, and I thought that a nice little inspired choice. I was very interested in the music for this coming into it because yeah me too the music was such an important part of the initial miniseries and it's obviously an important part of king's books especially the stand where he has epigraphs for all of it so i figured it would be updated a little bit still a song from the late 70s but eh, what are you gonna do well i i think uh the choice of music was spot on not only was the in the text it works great for flag but the kind of the eerie instrumental like zithery almost sound that leads into the song the whistling and stuff yep that makes it feel like like he's everywhere and nowhere and you don't know which direction he's coming from it it is a good choice yeah it's funny because i don't think of billy joel as a dark songwriter usually but that song definitely has a darkness to it and yet still playful as billy joel can be so i I think it fits flag perfectly. Hmm. We always need to end fun stuff on a high note. And that is that we end the show with Harold saying that he wants to kill Stuart Dogcock Redman. And I'm like, Dogcock, there's an insult I haven't heard very much or at all. Or ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's a new one for me. Maybe it's an Ogonquit thing. <laughs> it's more of a coastal main type of insult jay overall your your thoughts on the first episode of the stand i think it was pretty good i I, i'll give it i'll give it uh four out of five jamie sheridan's ah our new our new ranking of television shows jamie sheridan's i'm gonna go a little bit lower than you i'm gonna give it three but there's potential here for more i think i was taken aback by the way that this show was structured and the focus on this first episode so I'm going to go a little bit lower than you with three Jamie Sheridans, but I have I will continue watching it, have great hope for the rest of the series. I will say, and you and I have talked about this, they are not leaving anything off the screen. Like, you can see the money was spent on this. Yes. I think the acting so far has been pretty high quality, especially Harold. This kid was in one of the Stephen King, other another Stephen King movie. He was in the It movie. He was in the It movie, yeah, that's right. He was on an HBO show that I had watched... Mrs. Fletcher, that was pretty good. He's a good actor, and that is a difficult part. You could go really broad with Harold, and he was right on the edge of like making that character somewhat sympathetic, somewhat creepy, but not totally full-blown villain like you could potentially get. And uh, so I will point out a special piece of acting for him. Yeah, and he's certainly not the biggest name or recognizable name no. in in this series, so... It's got a pretty big and fairly impressive cast. So to put to put that much onto, even though I would have rather they had rearranged it a little bit um, with the, the characters, uh, he's, yeah, I agree. He, he's playing Harold very well. Yeah. 
All right. So uh, thank you all. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Stand, episode two. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. I will say that the initial stand noise on the credits, I thought of the Dark Tower Thinny noise because it is like a. (laughs) What? They're taking my, my my hard work? It's not like we have Lady Gaga or anybody playing uh, over uh, Randall Flagg, but. Lady Gaga? I don't think I've ever heard anybody pronounce it like that. (laughs) It's Lady Gaga. (laughs) Get your get your pop no uh, superstars right, Sean. It's Lady Gaga. (laughs) I mean, the Queen song's not Radio Gaga. Gaga. It's Radio Gaga. Yes, it is. It's Radio Gaga, (laughs) just like Lady Gaga. (laughs) Lady Gaga. Radio Gaga. (laughs) It's the same Gaga. <laughs> Next year to tell me they're not called ZZ Top. Uh, yeah, I got Pull, news for you. Pulling that one out from the uh, old days. Mm-hmm. <laughs>